<laughs> wow. I feel like I need to say, Valley Bible, are you ready to rock? <laughs> the junior higher is like, yay. Uh, if you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Paul. Um, I'm the pastor of the junior high ministry of LGP, and I absolutely love my job. I love my students. They're all over there. The crazy, funny, goofy-looking ones. Uh, love my job. I just, I love to be a pastor. I love to preach. I love to, to give God's word. I love to give it to students. It's a passion of mine. And it's a passion of mine because it's what God has created me to do. It's what God has set aside for me to do. And it's the most exciting thing when you're doing what God has designed you to do. But that same truth is also true to you. See, in Ephesians 2, it says that you are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. God has something for you, something that you can do that can advance his kingdom across the nations, across this globe. And I hope you find it. And I hope it gives you joy, just like my task for the kingdom gives me joy. Now, before we start, I have to give you a little caveat, a little, little clarification, because things are going to be a little different. And the reason they're going to be different is because we're looking, the main passage today is from the book of Haggai. If you can't find Haggai, the best thing to do is to look at the first page in your Bible. <laughs> it's called the table of contents. Look for an H. Haggai is in between two Zs, okay? If you got Matthew, go the other way, slowly. It's a small book, okay? Haggai chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. But in order to understand the weight and the gravity of this passage, you have to understand its background. Because the prophet in chapter 2 says something so challenging, so remarkable, that it's almost borderline outlandish. But you don't understand that if you don't know the full story. So today's message is going to be more like a journey. Okay, we will get to Haggai chapter 2. I promise we'll get there. But it's going to be more like a journey. It's not necessarily a three, four, five point message. Not that those are bad. Those are great. But certain passages require a, a different approach. And I believe Haggai chapter 2 requires this approach. So let's pray before we get started. Father God, I thank you again for another day. We are all here trophies of your grace. You have given us another day when all we deserve is judgment and condemnation, yet you decide to wake us up. Yet you decide to give air to our lungs, to pump blood in our hearts. You have given us another day. And even though right now we may be facing foreclosure, even though right now we may be facing heartache, trouble, depression, anger, whatever it is, However dark our day may be or our week or our month, you have given us another day of grace. And Father, I pray out of that gratitude, out of that grace, that you'll speak to us again. Give us another grace. Help us continue in this race, Father. And Father, I pray right now that you prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts for you to speak. Because my words are vain. They will come out of my mouth and fall to the floor if I attempt to change any life in here. But it is your words that spoke in creation. It's your words that stilled the storm. It's your words that can change a life. And I pray like the people of Israel before the Mount Sinai, 
before you came and you spoke your covenant in thunder and lightning. Prepare our hearts. They were not prepared to hear Moses. They were prepared to hear their God that said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what we pray for right now. No one came here to hear me. They came to hear you speak because we want nothing else. Amen. So when we, uh, when we talk to children sometimes in being a junior high pastor, one of the most difficult tasks that we have is teaching complex and lofty ideas in a way that's manageable and conceivable to a child. Right? And it's hard. And sometimes when we speak to children, we say things that are in the long run misleading. Now, we don't do this intentionally. We do it simply because we're trying to explain something complex to someone who can't understand things that are as complex, right? Everyone knows this truth when your kids to get about to junior high, high school, and they're going through algebra. And you're thinking, okay, how do I explain a derivative to my kid who keeps watching Power Rangers, right? How does that work out? And it's tough. Some of you are thinking, I don't know what a derivative is, so how can I explain it? Now, a good example of this is the whole story of the stork, right? You know the story of the stork. This bird flies in and delivers all these newborn children to parents, right? Now, you know that story. Now, the reason we tell that story is because, number one, either we want to divert from an awkward conversation, right? We don't want to tell them information that they're not ready for yet. Like when they point at baby brother and say, where did he come from? And you're like, uh, the grocery store, (laughs) right? Or you're just trying to make something more manageable for them. Okay, now the person who started this whole stork story wasn't trying to deceive the masses, right? They were just trying to make something more manageable for children. Now my grandparents did this. And I believe, you know, you as a parent, or maybe your parents, or maybe you as a grandparent, you do similar things like this. But this is more about your understanding of the church. See, my grandparents went to a, a very conservative, 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 conservative church. Very conservative Presbyterian church. Okay? Now, I would wear, and I had to wear, this red little sweater vest and a matching bow tie. Okay? I look like a mini Jim Tressel. You guys know who that is. Okay? He's the football coach for the Ohio State Buckeyes, and he looks weird. He dresses like he's in the 60s. But anyways, that's how I had to dress, right? And even though when you looked at me, when you saw me as a little child, you thought, oh, look what a well-mannered young man. Who wears a sweater vest, right? You looked at me, you thought, oh, what a level-headed kid. But I was a fireball, man. I was bouncing off the walls like my mom used to say. Okay? And my parents had the tasking, or sorry, my grandparents had the tasking chore of trying to keep me busy in the pew. Right? Now, I was a little kid, and I didn't learn how to read till the age of 13. So it's not like they could throw a comic book at me. Right? They had to get creative. Etch a sketch. Right? I was like... And I'm dyslexic. So that doesn't help. Etch a sketch is like, I want to go up and down. Why am I going left and right? I'm going up and... Uh, right? It didn't work. They had to get creative. So really, the solution to their problem was basically the strategy of any good, successful parent. It's called fear. Right? Now, my grandparents never came off. Some of you are like, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> right? Some of my, grand- or my grandparents never, like, smacked me in the back of the head at church. 
But they did strike the fear of God in me. And this is how they did it. My six foot four, 200 plus pound grandfather would lean over the pew and stare straight into my soul (laughs) as only he could do, right? Seeing every corner and crevice that I tried to hide sin in, he could see. And he would look at me and he'd say, Paul, I'd look at him, yes. (laughs) He would say, this is God's house. You behave. So as an imaginative young child, this is what I thought of. God was hiding in the rafters of the church. Right? And like Quasimodo in the hunchback of Notre Dame, he was going to swing down, grab me, and take me to some corner of the sanctuary area that my grandparents would never find me if I acted out. That scared me. It worked. Right? Some of you are thinking, I'm going to try that. God's going to get you. He's in there. He's going to swing down and get you. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't do that same parental strategy? Am I saying that you should tell your, not tell your kids, hey, this is God's house. You need to behave. I'm not saying that. But I think that this story, this funny story that we used to discipline our children, is actually a sign of a modern misconception of sacred space. Now, what do I mean by sacred space? Sacred space means where God has specifically decided to manifest his, himself. Okay? A perfect example of this is Mount Sinai. Okay? God, Moses goes up the mountain... And he wants to have an encounter with God. And he pleads with God, please show me your face. And God says to Moses, take off your sandals because where you are standing is holy ground. Now what is different between this dirt and the dirt that is down the mountain where the people are carving out a golden image? What's the difference between the dirt? What's the difference between God's presence there? The Bible teaches us that God is everywhere, right? That's what we call omnipresence. God is everywhere. But there's something different about the dirt on the top of that mountain and the dirt on the bottom of that mountain. Whoa. All right. right? That's God saying amen. <laughs> right? The dirt on the top of the mountain and the dirt on the bottom mountain. It's because God has specifically chosen to manifest himself more. That's why it's holy ground. You see, the story of this sacred space starts in the Garden of Eden, where God chose to dwell with Adam and Eve, his first creation, the representative of mankind before God. He chose to walk with them in the cool of the day. Sacred space then moves to a mountain, larger, more magnificent, a greater display. Then from that mountain, it moves to a tabernacle. Then from a tabernacle, it moves to a temple. And the cameraman is saying, please stop. Right? Moves to the temple. But then there's a break. Then there's a crack, a crack. There is a a mistake in sacred space. Something happens that disrupts this pattern. And it's the destruction of the mighty temple of Solomon. And the people of God, for the first time, have to think, has our God been defeated? Has our God left us? Has our God forsaken us? Because what once stood so strong and a symbol between the union of God and man, where we came to see God, where we saw the Spirit of God move, that place, that temple is gone. 
It's been raided and ransacked by a people who pride themselves in forsaking and defaming God's name. How on earth did our God allow that to happen? Because of their sin, the people of Israel moved into captivity. They moved into captivity at the site of Babylon. But yet God gives them favor. And for the first time, there's a glimpse of hope. A glimpse that maybe God will restore us. Because he gives them favor in the ruler of the Babylonians. And they move back to Israel, to the homeland, to the place where, it's, where God said to Abraham, your people will have this land. And I will make your family greater than the sand of the seashores, greater than the stars in the heaven. They return back to the promised land. But they begin to struggle with the same thing that led them into captivity. They begin to struggle with sacred space once again. And we see this in Ezekiel chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Now you can flip there if you want, or you can stay in Haggai, because promise you, I promise you, we'll get there. But in Ezra chapter 3, it says this, And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. The exiles have come back. They've come back. They've come to this great site. They've come back to reclaim the greatness of their kingdom. A kingdom and a nation not defined like any other in history, not by its economic or military strength. This was the kingdom of God. This was the kingdom of God's chosen people. This was the kingdom where God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. This was the kingdom that started with the promise to Abraham, had its high days in the days of David, but now had been left to ruins. They were coming back, and in their minds, what was the first task that needed to be done? They needed to rebuild the temple. The focal point of their faith needed to be restored. The epicenter of their spirituality needed to be built. But yet when they laid that foundation, what do you see? You see those that were young who couldn't remember the greatness of Solomon's temple. You see those people shout for joy. But then the weeping comes in. Then the mourning comes in. Then the depression and disappointment sets in. And sets in from who? It sets in from those who remember Solomon's temple. Those who remember the greatness of what they once had. This tiny little temple was actually half the size at full construction of what they once had in Solomon's temple. Now Solomon, during his days, the kingdom experienced such great financial prosperity. It says in, in 1 Kings 
sorry, in 2 Kings, that Solomon had made silver as common as stone. So the amount of material and the quality of material that Solomon had at his disposal was so much greater than those recent captives had. But this is the thing. You see, Solomon's temple was not only great in dimension, not only great in size compared to this tiny temple of Ezra. No. That temple, Solomon's temple, was the house of the Ark of the Covenant, the most important piece of furniture in that place. Now, what's the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant is that thing in Indiana Jones that has the two angels on it, right? And when Indiana is, uh, is roped up, this isn't Raiders of the Lost Ark, if just, you're just wondering, right? It, he's like locked up like this, and the Nazis tip the lid over, and then God kills all the Nazis. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, all the kids are like, who's Indiana Jones? <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant was the visible presence and symbol that God was there. See, in battle, they would take the ark and they would parade it around in front of the army. What did that say? God is our warrior. Our God goes first. And during the time of the Exodus, when they had the tabernacle, the ark sit in the middle of the, in the, middle of the tabernacle at the center of their encampment. And it said this, God is the center of our community. But not only that, the ark was the heart of the highest of all holy days for the people of Israel, the day of atonement. It was a time when only one priest entered the holies of holies. When one priest every year would come in and make atonement for the people of Israel. That ark was gone. That symbol of God's presence was gone. When Solomon's temple was destroyed and ransacked, it was taken. And it has been erased from the pages of history. Unless you're Indiana Jones. It's no longer with us. So Ezra builds this puny little temple, but there's no ark. There's no ark. There's no symbol of God's presence. The people look at this temple, and what do they see? They see a heartless and empty temple, and they weep. Because even though the outside may look good, they know in the inside, God's not there. The holy of holies is simply an empty room. But not only that, not only was its construction depressing, but so too was its dedication. If you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, you'll see Solomon's great dedication. This great dedication, which prior to this dedication, we have a prayer of Solomon. And Solomon prays this prayer. He says, Father, I pray when people look at this temple, when the nations face this temple, they'll remember you and they'll remember your covenant. This temple, Solomon's temple, was a feat of modern architecture at the time. And it was the light, not only to the people, but a light to the nations. So Solomon prays this prayer, and then we see this, starting in verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple because the Lord 
or sorry, entered the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all of the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle. It's a lot of beef. And 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple. Solomon's temple and all of its greatness was the scene of a theophany. A theophany is what theologians call something where God visibly manifests himself at a time in a specific chosen place. And what he does here in this text is that he comes down in a ball of fire and consumes this offering, which if you look at the numbers, it's like half a zoo, okay? Yeah, that's a lot of animals, okay? You imagine a fireball coming down, bam, L.A. Zoo is gone, okay? That's kind of what happened. And then God shows up in a glory cloud. He fills the temple with such space that the priests can't even make their way into it. What is God doing? God is saying, I approve of this place. I dwell in this place. So here's the question. This tiny temple, the tiny temple of the captives, the tiny temple of Ezra, even though it's small, even though it's only half the size of that of Solomon's, even though the quality of building material is not the same, and even though there is no ark, surely God's going to show up, right? Surely God will come in a great way and say, I still approve. If you look in Ezra chapter 6, starting in verse 16, Ezra chapter 6, verse 16 through 18, we only have three verses, three verses that describe the dedication of this temple. Three verses. And this is what they say. Then the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what was written in the book of Moses. Now, the first thing we see is that the size of the sacrifice is significantly smaller. You go from Solomon, who has hundreds of thousands of animals, and then you go to Ezra, who has hundreds of animals. If you do the numbers, Solomon's sacrifice is 200 times larger. But that's not the most impactful thing. That's not the most depressing and disappointing scene here at this dedication. Not only is it a smaller temple with a smaller sacrifice, this is the sad part. There is no God. There is no presence of God coming down. Where's the theophany? Where's the fire? Where's the glory cloud? Gone. Not there. And these people are disappointed. And these people are let down. Surely God would confirm their efforts. Surely God would affirm his people who he brought back from captivity and restored. Surely he would be there, but he was not. 
He didn't even stop by for a visit. Not there. And I think that depression, I think that disappointment from the people that caused that weeping that was so loud, I think it's even compounded by another factor. Not only the sight of the temple, not only thinking about what, what, what they had, what they once had, not only thinking about Solomon's temple, but thinking about a future temple, a temple that was promised to them. They looked back at Solomon's temple from its frame, from its dedication, from its sacrifice, from its theophany, nothing the same. But there is an even greater temple that these exiles were promised by a man named Ezekiel. See, Ezekiel came to the people, a prophet of God, came to the people, and this guy was weird. He was weird. This guy at one time was prophesying while laying on one side of his body. For months, he just laid there. And while he was laying there, this is what God commanded him to do. God told him, I want you to make like a little toy story invasion of the people of Israel. So he's drawing in the dirt, playing in the sand like a child. And at this time, God also instructs him, you need to make bread. You need to make bread, but you need to cook it over your own waist. Now, not like waist, like waistband. Waste like restroom. Yeah, this is an interesting guy who eats interesting food and has a very colorful ministry. But it's this guy who promises the restoration of Israel. And at the key of this promise, at the heart of this restoration, is this, a sanctuary. A temple greater than any temple. This temple was small, right? Ezra's temple, which in the time of Jesus, was called Herod's temple. Now, Ezra's temple was the foundation of Herod's temple during the time of Christ. What Herod did is he simply made additions to Ezra's temple. That temple, Jesus' temple, the one that Jesus went into, that temple was half, or sorry, it was two and a half football fields. Solomon's temple was half a football field. Ezekiel's prophetic temple was 12 and a half football fields. It was over half a million square feet. This temple was the Godzilla of temples. It was huge. But not only was this temple great in its dimension, it was also great because of what the promises it brought with it. And there are six things that this temple brings. One, there's going to be a new altar. And this altar will be dedicated and used appropriately. Second, this temple would have a priesthood who was devoted to it. A priesthood who would not use their influence in the past like they did for idolatry. Third, this temple would be the house where governors and kings came in, and when they left, they would rule fairly and justly. Four, this temple would be such an influence to the businessmen of the time that they would do their business fairly. Fifth, this temple would be the site of all the high holy days of Israel. And lastly, this temple would perfectly obey the Sabbath commands and the daily sacrifices. It was a perfect temple with perfect people and perfect practices. Now think about it if you are the captives. If you are those housed in chains by a foreign nation who doesn't even acknowledge God. And a prophet comes up to you and speaks into your ear by the rivers of Babylon and says this, God's building a house. 
God's building a sanctuary? You think Solomon's temple was great? This is Godzilla temple. Not real Godzilla. This temple would crush that one. You can almost hear the people say, our God will restore us. Our God will deliver us. Not only will he free us from our bondage, but he will bring us back to greater glory than we have ever known as a nation. And it's that thought right there. It's that thought of greatness that betrays the people at the site of Ezra's temple. It is that thought that causes them to weep. And the atmosphere, you could almost hear the silent voices saying in the time of this dedication, looking at this puny temple saying, this isn't even Solomon's. This is nothing. This is unlikely, unattractive, and unworthy to be even called a temple. It's not as good as what we had, and it's definitely not what we were promised. But is at this moment, at this moment of tension, depression, and disappointment that Haggai makes his outlandish statement. If you go to Haggai chapter 2, look, I promised we'd be there. Haggai chapter 2, we got there. That was the intro. Woo! No, I'm just kidding. You're all like, I want to go home. All right. Haggai chapter 2, don't start your Sunday morning nap early, please. We're not done yet. Okay? Haggai chapter 2, verse 4 through 9 says this. This is what the prophet says. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you. It's like the prophet is digging the knife even deeper. I'm with you? Really? When? Where? I remember what I saw in the days of Solomon, and it's not what I saw here. Yet the prophet says that. This is what I have covenanted with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains among you. Man, you can hear the people question that, can't you? You question that, don't you? When time is tough and things are not as they seem, they should be to you because you're in Christ. You say that, you're with me? This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, In a little while, I will shake the nations and the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and the desired of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. Says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. And here it is. Here's the peace. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. How on earth can he say that? This temple will get greater glory than that of Solomon's? When Solomon was the site of fire and clouds? See, I think what the people did And one of their faults was they externalized the idea of religion. They thought that God cared more about the architecture, the frame, the building materials, more than he cared about the worship that that house was intended to have. This is the same thing that the disciples do in Mark 13, 
When the disciples are strolling with Jesus and they come along Herod's temple, they tell Jesus, look at this temple. And this is what they say in Mark 13. I'm going to read it quick, so you might want to just stay in Haggai. As he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. You can almost anticipate what Jesus is going to say to that. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be torn down. Now, why can Jesus make such a statement? Because he knew the true practices that were going on in that temple. The true practices that were amassed by piety and ceremony. He knew that these people were far from God who governed that temple. And he tells us in Mark 11, when Jesus is at the side of the temple, says this, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This temple may have looked polished, it may have looked like it was well taken care of, but this temple was so far from what God intended it to be. These people who govern this temple, who posture themselves as if they were godly, these people were so far from God that they would crucify his son, that they would persecute the disciples and they would do everything to stifle the movement of the church. See, just like in the Wizard of Oz, right? When the man behind the curtain is finally revealed, we get the truth. And who is the Wizard of Oz? He's a petty imposter. He uses smoke and mirrors to deceive the masses. That's the same thing that was happening in this temple. Because these people who governed sacrifices, who were over ceremonies, who were in charge of teaching the law of Moses, these men were ungodly. So ungodly that Jesus would say to them, you are whitewashed tombs. You are full of pride and deceit. There is no spirituality in you. Wow. Maybe that's what their problem was, right? Maybe at the site of this temple dedication, of Ezra's dedication, that's what the exiles did. They just messed up. They got confused. They looked at the outside instead of the inside. I don't think so. Do I think they were guilty of that? Yes, I do. But I don't think that's fully the problem. Why? Because these people still had no ark. They still had no theophany. There's a spiritual piece there that was missing. The question is, what is the greater glory? How can Solomon say, sorry, how can Haggai say that this temple will receive greater glory? What was he thinking? Was he a madman or a prophet? But this temple, Ezra's temple, had something that Solomon's temple never, ever had. Ezra's temple was the foundation of Herod's. So during the time of Christ, if you were to enter Herod's temple, it was like you were entering Ezra's temple. 
What did that temple have that Solomon's did not? This temple was graced with the presence of God. It was the sight of the God-man. This temple was simply made up of signs and symbols. It was a visual stimulating temple. God came and did marvelous things. But this temple was not judged by its design or its decor. It was judged by the presence of the divine. You see, Jesus made all the difference. He took an unlikely temple that was tiny and puny, and he made it great. Why? Because he was there. Emmanuel, God with us, the ultimate manifestation of sacred space, the perfect union between God and man was right there in that temple. And it didn't matter if it was made out of mud or sticks. It was great because Christ was there. You see, but this isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the story of sacred space. We moved from a garden to a mountain to a tabernacle to a temple to Christ in a greater temple. But now things have changed. Because of Christ and his redemptive work, because of his commission of the Holy Spirit, sacred space has exploded like an atomic bomb. Sacred space is not consumed and not confined by sticks, stone, and brick. It's now confined by flesh, blood, and soul. Sacred space is you. You are the temple of the living God. And God took what was insignificant at that time structurally and made it great because of the presence of Christ. But God takes what is insignificant morally, spiritually, and makes it great because of the presence of Christ dwells in here. Paul uses this in 2 Corinthians 6 when he's exhorting his believers to move away from associating themselves with people who are compromising their morals. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14. Do not yoke together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And here it is. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and I will be, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul here to something very, very, very interesting. Not only does he call you the temple, but 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is actually a quotation, a citation of Ezekiel 37. That crazy prophet? That man who prophesied of a temple 12 and a half football fields in size? Paul is quoting him. Listen to Ezekiel 37. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy 
when my sanctuary is among them forever. The center point of Ezekiel's restoration message is a temple. A temple with perfect priests, perfect practices, and perfect people. But what Paul does here is he tells us that we, the church, are the inauguration of this promise. We are the beginning of the fulfillment of this temple. Because Ezekiel's temple is the close of sacred space. Perfect union between God and man. Perfect people, perfect priests, perfect sacrifices in a massive temple. We are that fulfillment. So what does that mean? That means that worship is not about what you sing in this building. Worship is about your personal behavior outside of this building. Worship is not about how you act in here. It's how you act out there. Worship is a lifestyle. And yet what we've done is we have compartmentalized our relationship with God saying this, I can act this way at God's house, but then I can act this way outside of God's house. But that's the thing about sacred space. Because of the redemptive work of Christ, that's not true. See, sacred space is not a place where you go. It's not outside of you. It's in you. This right here is not holy ground. This is holy ground. See, worship is a 24-7, 365 endeavor. But Paul uses this to extort, or sorry, to exhort, not extort. He doesn't want money. <laughs> Uh-oh, good thing we took the offering before. But he uses this, this principle, this concept of sacred space to encourage and exhort his believers. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 says this. Since we have these promises, the promises of being the temple of the living God, since we have these promises, it says, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Just as Christ made the insignificant significant, he makes you insignificant. He makes you significant. Just as that temple was unlikely, unworthy, and unattractive, so too were you. Unlikely, unattractive. Salvation is not a beauty contest. We don't display our morals before the creator of the universe and then he chooses us. No. Ezekiel 16 and 17 illustrate that our salvation started like this. God saw us in a pool of our own blood and waste. If you don't believe me, read it. That's what it says. He saw us as babes rolling in our own filth, but then he picked us up, washed us off, and made us beautiful. That's what God does with you. But right now, some of us, maybe all of us, our temples aren't very clean. Because maybe here we don't say certain words. Maybe here we don't look at certain things. But what happens when the kids are gone? 
and your wife is gone, and you're sitting by yourself in front of that computer screen, are you a temple then? What happens when anxiety hits you? What happens when aggression hits you? Are you a temple then? So right now, before I pray, before I close, this is what I want us to do. I want us to bow our heads. And I, want to handle, I want you to handle your business with God. I want you to think, how clean is my temple? Is my temple merely a shrine to anger, depression, pornography, hatred? What am I worshiping? Because this fact is always true. This is always a temple. The question is, who are you worshiping? So as you bow your heads and you close your eyes, I want you to think about that. I want you to think, if Jesus came to your temple, would he go in with a rebuke saying, my temple was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers? Would Jesus come into your temple and point out and find your sin? Or would he say, this is where God resides perfectly? So as you close your eyes and bow your heads before I pray, ask God to come in and be your janitor, to clean up the stuff that shouldn't be there. Father God, we love you and we thank you for your truth that cuts to the heart. Your truth that makes us pray and plead for grace. Father, we are so dependent and we are so crippled without you. Grace is not a crutch. Grace is a life preserver. Grace is a gurney because without it, I cannot stand and I cannot live. And right now what we pray for is that you would clean out our temples that you would throw away the idols that we have placed there, whether it be money, whether it be family, whether it be pornography, anger, whether we're holding on to something of the past that we just can't get over, whatever is keeping us from you, I pray that you will tear it out of us, even if it hurts. I pray that you will cleanse our temple. And sometimes it may take some turning of tables. It may take Jesus crafting a whip before he went into that temple. It may take some pain, but we know it's worth it because when it's clean, the joy we have in worshiping you is amazing. So, Father, I pray that you'd clean out our hearts, that you'd clean out our temples, that you'd make it a place where you are glad to reside because we know as unlikely temples, we are the greater temple because of who lives inside of us. In your name I pray, amen.